Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with Ronald Epstein, MD, Professor of Family Medicine, Psychiatry, Oncology and Medicine at the University of Rochester, School of Medicine and Dentistry, Board Certified in Family Medicine and Hospice and Palliative Medicine, and the author of Attending Medicine, Mindfulness and Humanity. Very welcome to the show, Ron. We're delighted to have you speaking with me today. At what point in your career do you think mindfulness became a topic in your mind? I was a meditation practitioner for several years before even starting medical school. So the, the question is actually, you need to stand it on its head, which is, um, at what point out of my practice, uh, my contemplative practice, did the idea of becoming a doctor uh, emerge? So for me, my interest in medicine took a path just very briefly from Zen practice to uh, oriental healing traditions, Chinese medicine, shiatsu acupuncture, and also cosmology, then to uh, a realization that if I wanted to make a difference in healthcare in the U.S., that I might want to consider going to medical school, and then went to medical school with a naive, and sometimes naivete is helpful because if you knew too much, you wouldn't do something, um, but with the, with the idea that um, I could bring this sensibility that you get from knowing yourself in a deep way to medical practice, and somehow those around me would embrace that. And I think largely that's been true, although the road has not been necessarily straight or easy. Mm. Okay. Thinking about the people who I interact with from time to time, uh, either as associate dean of a medical school or indeed in practice itself, I don't get the sense that we have yet embraced the idea that one of the things we could do to improve outcomes in healthcare is to look within ourselves at how we're showing up to our job. Well, um, I would say if you have a deep conversation with most physicians uh, and ask them when they're at their best, what qualities of mind do they have? And they will point to things like attentiveness, they'll point to things like presence, they'll point to things like the ability to set aside preconceptions, so uh, what in Zen they call a beginner's mind. So if you put that into the vernacular, I think that uh, the values and, and skills that we're trying to promote are not all that foreign. What is foreign is that most people think that's something that you're born with, that you're either an attentive person or you have this quality of presence or that you... Um, and the radical idea is you can actually cultivate those qualities. In fact, we do and we have to. So if a, you know, a transplant surgeon didn't have the capacity for focused attention, their patients wouldn't survive. So then I asked them, you know, well, how did you learn to do that? And then people start scratching their heads and saying, I don't know. And so that's the area. So the thing that has not been accepted and really well known is that there's actually a technology, there's a way to grow your own attentional capacity, your own capacity for presence, your own capacity for beginner's mind, curiosity, all these other things that uh, comprise what now is called mindfulness. Yeah. 
If we go to where we currently are on this journey, for a lot of people, a lot of medics, they get to the point where today they will see between 30 and 50 patients. They'll see a patient almost every 10 minutes, if sometimes even faster. And that's, that's, that's interesting. But anyway, they do that. They've got a whole bunch of administrative things to do. They have issues about, you know, earning the money to keep the lifestyle going, et cetera, et cetera. How do you persuade that person to make this um, transition? Because if you talk to, if you listen to people like Eckhart Tolle talking about the, the journey, he says that, you know, you need to be in pain and sufficient pain before you make that transition. I think in the current environment, there are really two sets of factors. One is that the, the nature of the work that we do is becoming less and less human. And that's a huge problem. So uh, in primary care in the US, for example, doctors spend twice as much time in front of a computer as they do in front of a patient. And a lot of that computer time is filling out checkboxes. And those checkboxes may have very little to do with the suffering that that patient's experiencing um, and the treatments that are likely to alleviate it. It's, it's to fulfill rather complex and convoluted administrative risk requirements. And there's a point beyond which you cannot function in such an environment. So, and part of my work is actually trying to bring attention to those environmental factors that really must change in order to permit mindfulness. I'm not asking a lot of healthcare systems. I'm not asking them to help doc to, to make doctors mindful. I don't think that's necessarily possible, but they can create the conditions under which mindfulness might be possible. And, and then the second part is that you have to feel a disconnect between a sense of calling and purpose on the one hand and what you find yourself doing in everyday work. And more and more, uh, I can't say the majority, but uh, a healthy percentage of physicians are experiencing that tension. Now, there's a spectrum between tension and distress and burnout and suicide. So the number of doctors who are experiencing that tension or that distress or that burnout is huge. And, uh, and they're looking for something. Now, some try to just simply blame the system and say, you know, that the system needs to change right away. Even under the best of circumstances, even if you had the most enlightened healthcare system leader, it's going to take a very, very long time to untangle this mess. And in fact, although the nature of this mess is new, there have been messes in healthcare for centuries. So it's, it's not that healthcare has ever been easy. And so the challenge for individuals to find a sense of intention, a sense of purpose, a sense of calling, a sense of meaning that drives that need to do something uh, has been there for a long time. Are we talking here about vocation or are we talking about something else? Well, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by vocation because um, there's a spectrum between, from, at one end it's a calling, you know, something that you feel that you're called to do. At the other end, it's just a job. Yeah. If you're feeling that it's just a job, maybe you don't feel that tension. Maybe you just are so disconnected that there's not the motivation if you're feeling so overwhelmed that you're at the point of quitting or uh, doing something harmful to yourself, uh, I'm not sure a mindfulness class is the thing that that is the, your most immediate need. I think you know you need mental health care. Uh, you need to disconnect in some way. So I'm 
But I think those those groups really represent the extremes. And there's a huge number of people in the middle who are searching for something. Mm. Yeah, there are. There are. I'm thinking now in terms of, you know, talking to people who are at the start of their career and saying to them, look, you know, when you are on rotation in a particular specialty and you see the 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 fancy car and the drive and the and the draw and the and the house in the best suburbs and the two foreign holidays and you're aspiring to that, you need to take a step back and say, how is this going to impact on my practice, on on how I bring myself to my work. Would you say that's something we should be talking about? I think so. I mean, you know, one positive consequence in the States of the mess that healthcare is here, which is really a mess, we don't have a healthcare system, is that anyone going into medicine has to have their head in the sand to not see that there's a mess, that they're really entering into a very complex and difficult environment and if they're just simply wanting to have a fancy car and a nice house, there are a lot easier ways to do that now. You know, 20 or 30 years ago, that might have been different. People might have had a fantasy that this would all uh, be easy. But I think no one really has a sense that it's easy. And um, and in my, from my perspective, that's good uh, in the sense that they are actually entering with a reasonable set of, uh, of expect- expectation. My daughter is a first-year medical student. And she sees how I work and what I put up with. She's worked in hospitals. She she is very um, aware. And, and she's thinking from day one, how am I going to make meaning out of this? How am I going to do a good job? How am I going to serve my patients? How am I going to live a reasonable life? And, and those are all very, um, very appropriate questions. So for even for her and for the students that that we have here at this university, it's still going to, although they go in with their eyes open, they're going to still face the situation of having to deal with the bureaucracy, having to deal with the complaints and, and the rushing and the no lunch and the late home to dinner. That is still going to be a reality. How do we get to the point where we talk to them about mindfulness as being part of the answer? By mindfulness, I mean a quality of mind while you're at work, or I call about mindful practice. It's it's. it's I mean, the word mindfulness is bantered around but quite a bit, but my interest is, is in bringing those qualities of mind, of setting aside judgment, of curiosity, of presence, attentiveness. To So I ask people, can you imagine a mindful resuscitation attempt, a mindful code? Can you imagine a mindful uh, operative complication, mindful response to an operative complication? Can you imagine a mindful response to an angry patient? Can you imagine a mindful response to, you know, some the next ridiculous mandate that you get from whatever healthcare organization that you um, that you pertain to? And so that's the mindfulness that matters. So you're, it 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 requires finding a way of creating a space between stimulus and response. So you have this aversive stimulus, and we have these all day, right? And then we have, uh, you know, and depending on the force of that stimulus, the greater likelihood is that you'll have some kind of knee-jerk reaction, which is not necessarily the thing that's in your own best interest. So how do you, when you're experiencing stress, distress, tension, uh, some anhedonic event, 
How do you then just stop and take a breath for a moment or pay attention to your feet or pay attention to a bodily sensation without pushing it away? Let that be your barometer and then allow yourself to express those responses that allow you the greatest degree of freedom, flourishing, whatever it is that you're, that you're aspiring to. And so that's what mindfulness is. And so when I was, uh, when I was a resident, I, I mean, codes are usually chaotic, right? And, you know, people throwing things around the room, screaming at each other. I mean, and, you know, there's a certain theater to it. But by and large, that chaos is fairly useless. And so I really took it upon myself to say, to, to just think about what it would be like if this event were mindful. And so I just, you know, and I, I would take a breath and say, okay, let's do this. We don't need so much noise here. We have six people in the room. We don't need any more people. So just really thinking, just having this image of, of what it would be like to pay attention in that particular way. Now, can I do that all the time? Obviously not. But to have that as an aspiration. And then people discover that if you do this once, it kind of feels good. You know, it kind of feels like you are acting in concert with who you are as a person. And then that creates a sense of positive reinforcement. So it's a sense that this is within reach, that it's something that's good, that you feel good about because it's expressing your professional identity, and that it's actually something you can learn to do. So we teach people how to do meditation, mm. but the meditation is really like practicing scales on a piano. Okay, you would never, I started out life as a musician, I would never stand up on stage or you can sit down on stage in front of a piano and play C major scales for an hour, okay? I mean, uh, and, you know, that wouldn't be very interesting, right? <laughs> but still, it's something you have to do if you want to play, you know, a Brahms concerto or, or, you know, whatever it is, jazz, whatever your musical taste is. Um, it's just something that, um, and you have to find some intrinsic interest in mastery of that. So um, we do teach doctors to meditate, but we say, well, can you find 30 seconds during the day during which you can practice being fully attentive? Okay. So if you know that on your commute to work, there's a stoplight that's particularly long and you usually hit it when it's red. Okay, can you use those 30 seconds, rather than being impatient and gunning your engine or turning the radio up, can you use those 30 seconds to be absolutely as present as you possibly can? Or when you're scrubbing for an operation, you know, those three minutes that you're washing your hand, what do you do during that time? And, and is there a way that you can use that as an exercise to build your, your capacity for attentiveness? So that's what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not that you're, you're taking... I mean, yes, I have a meditation practice. I sit every morning. It, it's been very useful for me. I think it's useful for a lot of people. But I'm saying if you can do those little three-second, those 30-second periods, for example, in, in my primary care practice, the way the things are set up in the U.S. is that there are patients in rooms and the doctor goes from one room to the next. I know it's different in different parts of the world. So I have an opportunity to exit a room and then enter another room and touch the doorknob or the door handle as I'm going in. So what I do when I touch that door handle is I take a breath, I mentally set aside what's happened with that previous patient, and so that I can approach that new patient with, with a, a degree of freshness. And in primary care, as a family doctor, you know, one patient could be a healthy newborn and the next patient could be someone dying of lung cancer. And so you don't want to, you know, 
obviously, you don't want to be carrying that baggage from one room to another. And and for me, that's an exercise in mindfulness. It's an exercise in beginner's mind. It's an exercise in presence. And so in the trainings that we offer for doctors, we explicitly help people find mindful moments during the workday so that they can actually practice that. Now, if you let's say you see 40 patients in a day, I mean, that gives you 40 opportunities to practice a mindful ex- exercise. And if you do it 40 times a day and you do it five days a week, that's 200 times a week. And that's a lot. I mean, at the end of a year, you know, it's, you know, 10,000 repetitions. Anything you do 10,000 times, you get pretty good at. Sure. If I could go into that situation for a moment with you and say, at nine o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, when you're fresh, this is going to work really well because you are going to be rested, you're going to be fed, you're going to have used the bathroom, and you're going to walk into that room and you're going to remember all of this. At four o'clock in the afternoon, when you're on to your 30th patient, the 30th doorknob, you're going to be tired and you're going to start working to type, which means rushing in, doing all of these things. Are you suggesting that by practicing, at nine in the morning to whenever you're fresh, these periods will extend? Or do you think that we need to also be thinking about looking after ourselves in other ways, apart from the mindfulness practice that you're describing? Oh, absolutely. I and mean, this is not the answer to everything. And I mean, uh, imagine if you had the aspiration to run a marathon. I and mean, would you kind of try to, you know, go out and run 50K, you know, today? You know, I mean, it's crazy. You'd hurt yourself. And I think there's a danger in being overzealous. Right. So, um, so what, what what I would do is say, okay, try this with one patient, and see what happens. And if it, you know, if it kind of works for you, try it with two patients the next day. Now, doctors are tend to be uh, tend to be overachievers. Yeah. So my <laughs> job is to is to rein people in, and say, try just something really simple. Commit to doing something that's clearly within your reach. Not that's not something that is impossible. It's not even a stretch. And you know, I mean, other things that you know. Uh, another suggestion is is to um, suggest to someone that for one meal sometime this week, that you have that meal without being connected to a device. Okay, so everyone can do one meal of the twenty-one meals you have in a week. You probably do one. Okay. And I'd say, don't just stop there. Just do one and pay attention to what that's like. So it, but I think there's a whole other piece that you're, there are, there are, there are other large pieces that you're, that you're hinting at that. Um, so one thing that I think is particularly important in medicine is, and probably in life in general is, is creation of community and everything that has happened in medicine in the past 15 years in terms of, uh, information technology has actually splintered the medical community. Uh, I used to know the doctors I would refer to, not only by name, but I'd know their faces. I'd see them in the hallway. I'd, you know, we'd have we'd chat. There were places where we could naturally meet. We'd have curbside consults. You know, just finding someone in the hallway and saying, you know, just what will you do about this? Now everyone's sitting in front of a computer. And it's all asynchronous, and and of course. Computer communication is devoid of affect, or it's 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 full of projection and devoid of affect. Uh, so that so those spaces don't exist. So in the teaching that I do about mindfulness, 
we spend a lot of time uh, practicing mindful dialogues. That is, how do you engage with another person in such a way that when they're talking, you're not spending most of your time composing your own response, but you're spending most of your time really trying to understand that other person's experience. And then to personally experience what it's like to be listened to in that way, and also to listen to someone else in that way. And it's largely a very profound experience for for professionals because they've never actually had that experience with another professional. So it's mindfulness by yourself, and it's also mindfulness in dialogue. And most of our day is spent interacting with other people. And so, and you, you begin to find that it not only takes less energy and you're less exhausted, but also you feel that someone understands what's going on with you, um, that you understand, and it creates this sense of community that then I believe can cascade and create a greater sense of supportiveness and ultimately social change. Because none of us can do this alone. No, we can't. Ron Epstein, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Can you summarize what we've talked We've talked about a number of things. We've talked about, you know, looking at the, the door handle mindfulness. I, I love that analogy that you, you know, uh, become mindful as you go through a door. The idea that you have a meal when you are focused on your food and not on your iPhone. And the third thing you talked about there is to listen to somebody in a mindful way and see what that feels like for them and and for you. Anything else you would say to summarize our conversation? I think the fundamental task in healthcare is human understanding. Without that, you don't have anything. Clearly, there's a lot more that we need to do. There's a lot of technique. But human understanding is really what healthcare, what the basis of healthcare. And human understanding means understanding yourself and also having the openness, presence, and attentiveness to understand someone else. And that's really fundamentally what the work that I'm doing in mindfulness is about. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.